intentioned preaching that uh, gives the impression that God is just waiting to see what you're going to do. And uh, filled with disappointment that you haven't responded in the way that he really prefers that you would. I think that's an unhealthy presentation of things. I think that the, the right perspective is, I need what God alone can give me, and I'm in no position to make demands upon it. Uh, the Lord had healed other blind men, but when he passed through Jericho, blind Bartimaeus called out and said, Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. And uh, I hope that the Lord will stir up in your hearts, if you are unconverted, that the Lord will stir up in your hearts a right perspective on your need for Christ and uh, his willingness to answer the sinner's plea. The Lord does not answer in the way that we might wish. The Lord does not answer every prayer that we offer up. And that's going to be the, uh, the burden of the message this morning. But before I get to that, I, I do think that the Lord always hears the humble sinner's cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And uh, so if you, if you want to uh, become a Christian, you want to be right with God, that simple prayer is a good place to start. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, you have said that you would save sinners. Please save me. There are people around me that you have saved. and uh, Please save me. I'm completely at your mercy. I think the Lord always answers that sincere prayer. But there are many prayers, as I said, that we offer up to God. And uh, something that we desire earnestly. Something even that we may have confidence that he is going to give to us, and the Lord says, I will not do that. So the two scripture readings that we had this morning are uh, preparatory, preliminary to the message for today. Turning your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and while you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll explain to you how that those two scripture readings were uh, preliminary and prefatory for what is getting ready to come. So in the first scripture reading, I read from the text that uh, I preached from last week. There's a leper who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And he stretched out his hand and he touched him and immediately the leprosy left him. And then, so there's that, I will. And then we read from John chapter 11, where Martha and Mary send word to Jesus saying, Lord, come at once. Lazarus, your friend whom you love, is sick and about to die. And Jesus said, I will not come now. It's not stated that way in the text, but it says, now, Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and her sister, but when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And in the meanwhile, Lazarus died. 
And uh, so Jesus goes and uh, raises Lazarus from the dead, but at least for a while he said, I will not. I'll come back to Lazarus, Lord willing, later on in the sermon. Now in this text from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see a godly man, the Apostle Paul, asking that God would would answer a prayer for him. And he asks very earnestly three times. And three times the Lord says, I will not. So the sermon this morning is on when the Lord says, I will not. Resting in the sovereignty of God through suffering. I have heard that... uh, At the beginning of the Appalachian Trail, there are various little heaps of things that uh, hikers have started out with and within the first day or two have realized, I don't need this. This is just going to weigh me down. And so I've heard that there are heaps of equipment at little depositories in the first few miles of the Appalachian Trail. If you've ever done any significant backpacking, then you know you have a tendency when you first go to take some things that you don't need and that you wish that you had not brought. But there are some things that you know you need in that backpack. And I'm telling you, this is a sermon that you need to have in your backpack. Because sooner or later, you're going to be in a condition of suffering and you're going to beg God to get you out of it. And he's going to say, I will not. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. And it may be that you're requesting on behalf of someone else, Oh God, please heal my loved one. Oh God, please deliver my loved one out of this besetting sin. And the Lord is going to say, I will not. So how do we deal with that? This is a follow-up to last week's sermon when Jesus says, I will. How do we respond when the Lord says, I will not? Let's read this text. So the context is that uh, the people at Corinth uh, have not been as confident in the Apostle Paul as they ought to have been. And he has been explaining to them, here's why you ought to have confidence in me. And uh, chapter 12 and verse 1 takes us into that argument. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. Though on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of thee than he sees in me or hears in me. Now, I don't plan to preach on those verses, so let me just point out a couple of things. Uh, One is, the the man who was caught up to be in the presence of the Lord was Paul himself. And he's this, this, this passage that I've just read is written in, well, sardonic is the right word. It's written in a sardonic tone, but it's kind, of sarcast, it's kind of sarcastic. So that he is, yeah, you, you people don't have confidence in me. Well, let me tell you about someone I know. 
And here's what happened to him. This is why you should have confidence in such a man as that, shouldn't you? So that's the gist. That's the gist of this passage. And I find it interesting that it was 14 years ago that this happened. So he, he, had, he was caught up into the third heaven. So first heaven is uh, where birds fly. Second heaven is where the sun, moon, and stars are. And the third heaven is, uh, in this way of thinking, is where God is. And so he was caught up to see some things. And he said, I, I can't tell you about them. So I'm not sure if I was even in the body. It was such, it was such a, I, I'm not sure if it was a vision or if it was an actual real experience that I was caught up to this place. God knows. I, I don't know. It was so real, though. And I can't tell you the things that I saw. No, no one could, and I, I can't. So uh, I find all that very intriguing. I'm not going to preach on that this morning. What I am going to preach on is what comes next. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, my introduction to this text is going to occupy about half of the time that I have remaining. So I almost always quit at noon. And so uh, my, uh, my introduction is, is very important, and it's, it's lengthy, though it's probably going to take about half the sermon just for the introduction. But here are three fundamental truths that help us to grapple with uh, our disappointment and our pain when God says, I will not. You may have noticed in this text of Scripture, nowhere does the phrase, I will not, appear. But it clearly is what God said. Three times Paul says, please remove this vexing condition, this vexing situation. We don't exactly know what the thorn was. We may assume that it was some kind of a physical problem, and that's possible. But it may have been something else that caused him great anxiety. At the, at the end of my text, he lists four or five things that might qualify as a thorn. Uh, but the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, which is a way of saying, I'm not going to take away this uncomfortable condition, this vexing situation. I'm not going to take it away. I'm going to sustain you through it with my grace. And so uh, when I get around to preaching the text, we'll first of all look at... Uh, the source of this thorn. It's uh, interesting the way it's put, the source of this thorn. And then Paul mentions several purposes of the thorn. So why did God, why did this thorn come to him? And then uh, the third thing uh, will be how ought we to respond. Paul sets us an example. So what is a, a good reaction when God says, 
I will not do the thing that you have asked. But before I get to those things, I first of all want to lay down these foundational, fundamental truths that will help us to think about this passage of Scripture and situations in your own life when you have asked for something, something that may be good, something that you really want, and the Lord says, I will not. And the first fundamental principle is we are all part of a race that is cursed by sin. So we're all part of a race that has been cursed by sin. When God first created humans, he uh, placed them in an idyllic location in the Garden of Eden, provided them with everything that they could wish. And uh, he said, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you do, then there's going to come a drastic separation between you and me. In that day, you will die. And I think that the, the threat was primarily a threat of spiritual separation. You and I are no longer going to be in agreement about the way that life ought to be lived. And so there is inevitably a separation that takes place between persons when they disagree about fundamentally what is important in life. And so that happened. When, when the first humans sinned against the Lord, then we adopted a way of thinking and a way of living that was rebellion against God. And so there was a separation that opened up. So spiritual death occurred when that rebellion occurred. And God had an arrangement with the first man and the first woman that their actions would stand as representative actions for everyone who would proceed from them in the ordinary way. And so everyone except the Lord Jesus Christ, all of you, I, we've all proceeded from Adam and Eve in the ordinary way. Jesus alone is accepted from that because he was born of a virgin, so he never had a human daddy, but all of us, all of us have human daddies. And as a result of that, we are part of a race that has been cursed by God, and the threat of death has come true. So there was spiritual separation, but also there began, began a process of physical decay. So that in order for us to avoid the, the, the curse of the effects of sin in our physical bodies, we would have to no longer be human. And that's not possible. So uh, our condition may be compared to a, a hockey team that is playing one man down. I think that's called uh, kill, a kill, kill play. We are in, I'm not a hockey fan, so, but kill is in there. Do you know what it is? We're in a, a, well, power play is when you've got one more player. It's the opposite that I'm talking about. So when one of your, one of your guy, he's from St. Louis, and so I thought maybe he knew, but uh, it's, it's a kill play. So we're in a kill play. We're playing one man down. Uh, We've been penalized. Well, you don't just quit the game. But there's, there's no point in whining and saying, hey, we don't like it this way. You're in a kill play. So there's, there has been a penalty that has been imposed. Now, the great thing is that Wayne Gretzky is on our side. So uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest, Wayne Gretzky being the greatest hockey player of all time. But the Lord Jesus Christ is on our side. And we are going to win, but you're not 
I'm not going to escape the effects of, uh, of sin on our physical bodies. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and transforms us in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye, one day you're going to get sick and die. And your sickness may come very quickly like the flip of a switch, or it may come gradually like the lifting of a dimmer switch or the lowering of a dimmer switch. But everybody's sick just before they die. It may be because a bullet has pierced your heart. You get real sick real fast. Maybe because you've run headlong into a semi and you get sick real fast. But everybody gets sick just before they die. And so there's, there's no escaping that. Along those lines, keep, re- remember that the overwhelming... Let me, let me retract that and put it this way. Only a tiny fraction of the human race has ever been miraculously healed. A tiny, tiny fraction. Everybody else gets sick and dies in the usual way. Uh, even during the time of Jesus, that has to be true. Jesus' ministry was focused on a little tiny piece of real, real estate that's about the size of the state of New Jersey. And it was limited almost exclusively to one ethnic group. And so occasionally there would be a Syrophoenician woman who got helped, or occasionally there would be a Roman centurion who experienced the miraculous uh, cure in his household. But for the most part, it was just Jews, and in a little tiny, tiny piece of real estate, <clears throat> that's not nearly the size of the state of Kentucky. What about the teeming millions, I'm going to guess, who were living in China at the time? What about the teeming millions who were in India? What about the Native Americans who were scattered all over the North American and South American continents? They didn't, they didn't experience miraculous healings. And so I think that God still heals miraculously. I think it's far less common than it was in the days of Jesus. But even during the days of Jesus, the number of people who experienced a miraculous healing was just incredibly tiny. And then there's this also. They all eventually died. They all eventually got sick and died. Even the people that he raised from the dead, people like Lazarus, people like the widow of Nain's son, they eventually got sick and died. You know, the, the, some of the name it, claim it people, uh, people who say that if you just believe that something is true, then it will be true. If you just believe that God is going to heal you, you will be healed. I, I wonder, I would think that every once in a while I would see somebody who was about 200 years old. Surely somebody had enough faith that for 200 years they could hold their health together. But I don't know anybody that's 200 years old. Uh, so do they finally fail in their faith when they die? Um, so that's the first principle. We are part of a race that has been cursed by sin. We're, we're in a killer play. We are operating under rules that said now you have to cope with death. Play the rest of the game knowing that you're going to die physically. Very few people have ever been healed miraculously and all of them eventually got sick and died. So that's... That's the first principle. 
The second principle that will help you with this passage and with other passages is, uh, and your own, in your own disappointment, is to remember this. Spiritual health is more important than physical health. And so sometimes God uses physical sickness to promote spiritual health. You can, I, I can think of several verses of Scripture that teach this principle. So, for example, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life having one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Well, that's pretty drastic. You're really sick if you're pulling out your eye. And he says the same thing about your hand and your foot. Well, that's, that's a severe inconvenience to say the least. Why would you do such a thing? Because your spiritual health is more important than your physical wholeness. And so, and Jesus in another place says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Included in that would be the world of health. What if he's just hearty and hale and he can live for 500 years healthy? But he loses his soul. It's a bad deal. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So that emphasizes the principle. Your spiritual health is more important than your physical health. And then when Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples to to spread the news of the kingdom of God, they came back and they said, Master, even the spirits are subject to us. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know, that's pretty powerful. They were casting out demons. They were uh, raising people from the dead. They were healing people. They were helping people to have their best life now. And then Jesus says, no, that's, that's nothing compared to the fact that your names are written in heaven. So this needs to be our perspective that uh, I, I don't want to be sick, but if I get sick... One thing I can be sure of, I know that this is an opportunity for me to draw nearer to God. It may not be that God is disciplining me for something. We'll see more about that when I get to the text. But whatever the case may be, you don't know if God is disciplining you or not. But you do know that God is affording you an opportunity to grow in your character and to appreciate God more heartily. And so uh, that, that's a very important thing. Your spiritual health is more important than your physical health. And God sometimes uses uh, physical suffering and, and even death as a tool for uh, cultivating spiritual health. Uh, you know, discipline is a word... Uh, that doesn't just refer to corrective measures. It also refers to formative measures. So, you know, when Isaac Mitchell has his runners run five or ten miles, he's not punishing them, but he is disciplining them. He's disciplining them so that they will be able to face what is ahead. And uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says that you should regard hardship as discipline. Discipline is, discipline is the process of inflicting temporary discomfort comfort 
for the benefit of long-term pleasure. That's what all discipline is. Self-discipline. There is no good reason to deny yourself of something good unless by denying yourself you're going to get something better. Last night I was at my, uh, my nephew's wedding in Paducah, and uh, they had the most delicious cupcakes uh, at the reception. And uh, I ate one, and I thought, oh, that's really good. And so I ate a second one. <laughs> and uh, I could have eaten ten. I promise you, I could have eaten ten. But I thought, if you eat ten cupcakes, then you will not sleep well tonight. And then you're going to have to make that drive to Shepherdsville in the morning, and you're going to be grumpy and grouchy. <laughs> and not, not, able to, uh, not able to think clearly and, uh, and preach clearly. And so I want to. You know, I want to preach well. I want to help my people to understand what am I supposed to do when God says I will not. And so the prospect of helping you was greater than the prospect of enjoying five minutes of eating ten cupcakes. And, uh, but, so that, that's the way all discipline is. You discipline yourself, you deny yourself of something that you would like to have because there's something out there that you'd rather have. Maturity is the capacity to practice delayed gratification. Maturity is the capacity to practice delayed gratification. Little kids don't have it. I want it right now. I'm going to throw a fit if I don't get it. You, you come to learn. I want to throw a fit right now, but that will make people think I'm a pouty baby. So I don't want people to think that. I value my reputation more than I value. I would like to give her a piece of my mind right now, but that's going to severely compromise our friendship. I value our friendship. I'm not going to say that. And so on. All discipline is the, the process of going through something less pleasant now so that you can enjoy something more pleasant later. And sickness fits into that category. It is something that is less pleasant, something that we don't want to go through, but God often uses it. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something very close to this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us in our problems. I can't remember the last word. It's something like that. You remember what it's, it's something like that. You remember, Josh? So, uh, in our what? In our weakness, God, maybe weakness, but in, you get the idea. God, God whispers when things are going great and when things are going bad, and suddenly he really starts speaking messages clearly to you. That's, all that's based on this second principle that I'm laying down here in my introduction, and that is that Physical health is not as important as spiritual health. And sometimes God uses physical illness to promote your spiritual good. Here's the third foundational principle. And that is that God's glory is paramount. God's glory is his main concern, and it's not at all conceded for him to do that. The happiness of the universe is inextricably connected to the promotion of God's glory. Your own happiness, my own happiness is indissolubly, inextricably connected with the promotion of God's glory. And uh, if it means that we temporarily suffer, then 
we are willing to go through this temporary suffering for the promotion of God's glory. What else motivates Jesus to say in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's facing a brutal death on the cross, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is submitting to this principle. God's glory is more important than my comfort. And so that needs to be the attitude that we bring into all situations where we are sick or we are vexed with anxiety or some other kind of situation that we want God to do away with. When he says, I will not do away with it, then we say, then Lord, help me to live like a son of God under these circumstances. God, help me to show the world how a daughter of God behaves when she is sick. Lord, help me to show the world how a son of God behaves when he is unjustly treated, and so on. So uh, God's, God's glory is paramount. Now, with that, with that introduction, and I told you that it would take half the time, now let's turn our attention to this text where uh, we have a specific example from the Apostle Paul begging that God would heal him. And the first thing that I want you to see is the source of this thorn. So look with me again at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Note, note that. A thorn was given me. He doesn't say I was inflicted with a thorn. I was pierced with a thorn. Instead, he says a thorn was given me. Who gave him the thorn? Well, let's keep on reading. Let's see if we can get the answer. A messenger of Satan. Uh, it was Satan who had the thorn in his hand. Or at least a messenger of Satan. But look at why it was given. Well, it was given by Satan to harass me. But here's why the thorn was given me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Now, does Satan want to keep you from becoming conceited? No, of course not. He wants you to be conceited. That's when you're in your most dangerous position, when you think, I got this and I don't need anybody else. I don't need God or anybody else. That's when you are most dangerous, in most danger. So Satan does not want to keep you from being conceited. And so I think this means that it was God who gave him the thorn in the flesh, and he used Satan to do it. Satan doesn't want to do God's will, but Satan does do God's will. Satan is God's Satan. And so when, when he wanted Paul to get a thorn in the flesh, then he unhooked Satan's chain. And Satan was only too eager to plunge a thorn into this man who was doing so much to wrest the kingdoms of the world out of the thraldom that had been imposed by Satan. And so he rushes to the Apostle Paul and he stabs him with a thorn. Now, it wasn't a literal thorn, so it wasn't like he had a great big piece of wood that was stuck in him. Although Probably everyone in here has had a thorn or had a big splinter that really hurts you. 
And if it's a big enough splinter and if it is a, in a place that is sufficiently sensitive, it's difficult to get it out of your mind. And so it's a word picture, but it's a very powerful word picture and one that I think even the children can relate to. When you get a thorn, it hurts and you want to get it out. And so Satan is allowed to thrust something into the Apostle Paul's life that hurts him, and he really wants to get it out. He probably is, is thinking about it. And, uh, and it, it's rarely out of his mind. He can push it to one side, but when he just moves his heart in a certain direction, then he feels the pang of that sore, that thorn piercing into him. But he says that it, it ultimately was given to him by God. Now, it may be that whatever vexing situation you have or whatever sickness, it may be that the Lord has used it to bring it about. I think that there are many conditions in this world that uh, are the result of satanic influence. But God is in control of all of it. And that's the only place that real hope is going to be found. Some people try to find hope in saying, well, God didn't do this, Satan did it. Where's the comfort in that? Is, is there a universe where there is some being who has more power than God and uh, you are, you're vulnerable to this, this malicious being and God can't do anything about it? How much more comforting is the idea that God sometimes uses Satan to accomplish his purposes, but behind it all, God is in control, and God is keeping watch over his own, and God is working all things together, even, even bad things. Joseph is able to say to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And uh, we, So the Lord, uh, the Lord is in control so when we look at the source of this, there may be, you know, it was a virus. It was a bacteria. It was Satan. But behind the virus, behind the bacteria, behind Satan, there's God who gives them to his children for their good. So that's the source of this. Now let's see, there are at least four purposes for this thorn that are stated here in this text. And the first one is, so to keep me from becoming conceited. So character development is in view here. To keep me from becoming conceited. The opposite of being conceited is to be humble. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So God is, God is using all the circumstances of life to afford us opportunities to become more like Jesus, to develop our character so that we see things more and more from God's perspective and less and less from a, a frantic worldly perspective. So to, God is very concerned that we should not be conceited, but that um, whatever blessings he gives us, that we are always eager to say, this is because of the Lord's goodness. So the first reason that uh, the thorn is given is for the development of character. But let's read on. 
So a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Note that, my grace. And so trial, so we're talking about what are the purposes of these vexing situations or conditions. First of all, the development of character. Secondly, is the manifestation of God's grace. Manifestation of God's grace. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. God uh, manifests his grace even in sickness. And that seems sort of oxymoronic to us. We would think that God is showing us his displeasure in sickness. But here, God is demonstrating his grace. And... uh, God is demonstrating his grace even if the sickness, if that's what we're talking about, even if the sickness results in death when we're talking about the death of one of his children. Now, I think that we all see that clearly, that sometimes death is a a stroke of grace when it's an older person who is very sick and and, uh, in pain and uh, we all probably have heard older people say, I just want to go home and be with the Lord. And so we recognize, well, this, this is a manifest, manifestation of God's grace when he takes an ailing old person home. But I want to show you a couple places in the Bible where sometimes it is a manifest, manifestation of God's grace when he takes a very young person home. Turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 14. An Old Testament book, 1 Kings chapter 14. <clears throat> when Israel first got a king, they, they had Saul, David, Solomon. There were three kings who, uh, who ruled for a while over all 12 tribes of Israel. But then after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was split into two parts. And the bottom part continued to be ruled by one of the descendants of David, but the top part was ruled by a man who proved to be a very wicked man. His name was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And uh, in, in chapter 14, we read how that Jeroboam, well, just look at the very first verse. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And so to summarize what happens in the succeeding verses, Jeroboam says to his wife, Disguise yourself and go to the prophet of God and see whether or not our son is going to live. And so she does. And uh, it's a very interesting story, but the point that I want to make is found in verses 12 and 13. Arise, therefore, go to your house. The prophet tells the wife of Jeroboam, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. So the Lord says, in all the house of Jeroboam, there's only one person that I like. So I'm going to kill him.
Now, you can work out the various reasons why God might do that. But perhaps you get help from Isaiah chapter 57. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. Why would God take a young person or a person who looks like he or she has years of happy life ahead of them and we just don't know how we could do without them? Why does God take people like that sometimes? Isaiah chapter 57, look at verses 1 and 2. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. Yeah, that, that's where we are. Like, why? why did you take this righteous man? Why did you take this devout man? And then at the end of verse 1, it says, For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest on their beds who walk in their uprightness. I mean, clearly, the writers of Scripture, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, don't regard death as this horrible monster for the believer. I'm reminded of what uh, the Lord Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation. He says, The devil is going to throw some of you into prison, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And you think, Okay, after that, we're going to get out. And then this is what the Lord says next. He who remains faithful unto death, I will give the crown of life. In other words, some of you are going to die. Ten days, you're going to have tribulation. Then some of you are going to die. And you think, how is that fair? I'm devoting my life to following God. How is it fair that I, I die young? And then that letter to uh, the church concludes, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And that explains it all. Because your physical death is inevitable. Your physical death is the result of the curse of sin. But your spiritual death can be avoided. And if you die physically, but you enter into eternal life, you are blessed, unspeakably forever blessed. The other side of that is true as well. If you have a healthy, prosperous life and then you die and you go into hell, you're unspeakably forever cursed. So back in First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, even death is often a manifestation of God's grace towards his children. I can't say the same thing for lost people, but for his children, death is a manifestation of God's grace. Some of you know the hymn. We occasionally sing a version of it here, All Creatures of Our God and King. And in that, in that hymn, the, the writer, St. Francis of Assisi, calls upon various elements of this world to praise God. Thou rising morn in praise rejoice, ye lights of evening find a voice. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven long. And he goes on, and then there's a stanza that almost never makes its way into any of the versions. But it's this. And thou most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our latest breath. Oh, praise him. 
Thou leadest home the child of God, and thee the Savior also trod. Oh, praise him. And then that reminds me of a a hymn that was written by Richard Baxter. Part of it says, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. And so in, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, the Lord Jesus is described as the one who abolished death and has brought to life, life light, life and immortality. We still die physically, but the sting of death has been removed from physical death and we enter into life upon our death. Jesus said outside the tomb of Lazarus to Martha, He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Lazarus was dead. Lazarus would die again physically, but Lazarus was one of God's children and he never tasted the second death. So principle here from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is that God in these times when he says, no, I will not heal. No, I will not deliver you from this condition or situation are opportunities for the manifestation of his grace. And that's not all. There's something else that happens. He says in verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So these unanswered prayers serve for the formation of character. They serve for the demonstration of God's grace, but they also serve for the display of his power. Through weakness, God's power is made more obvious. I think that any Christian in here who has been sick can testify to that, that you have felt the Lord's nearness, uh, felt the preciousness of his, of his power uh, during those times of sickness. And it may be that during those times of sickness, you were used in a way that you would, could not possibly have imagined you would have been used because God uses weak things so that the excellency of the power... Here's the way it's put elsewhere. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Then the fourth purpose of uh, unanswered prayer is uh, stated here. It's very similar to the last one. He says in the end of verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it displays God's power, but it makes me more powerful in God's service too. Verse 10 says the same thing. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, one lesson for sure, I'm I'm getting ready to say how should we react. It'll be the final point of the sermon. But one lesson that we definitely should take away from this is beware of taking the credit for how tough you are. You know, three weeks ago, I had a bicycle wreck, smashed my collarbone. Uh, On the way to the hospital, a guy looks at me and says, you don't act like you're in much pain. I said, well, I've been told that I have a high threshold for pain. I was a little bit proud of that. You know, I can take a lot. I'm a tough old guy. Uh, I go to the orthopedist, and she says, can you do this with your hand? Can you do that? She says, wow, 
I can't believe you can do that. You really take a lot of pain. She shook hands with me. I'm kind of proud of that. I'm a tough old guy. Before the day is over, some virus could have me lying cold in the morgue. I'm so weak. We need need to be careful of these things that say, yeah, I'm pretty tough or I'm pretty smart or I'm gifted or this or that. Praise God for the gifts that he gives. Praise God that he makes you a tough old guy. It's way better than being a weenie. But, uh, uh, you know, just be careful. Give, Give glory to God. When you're weak, then you're strong. And so... How should we react to that? Paul gives us three things here, three ways that he did. First of all, plead with God to take it away from you. That's perfectly good. That's what you should do. God, please heal me. God, please heal my loved one. Lord, please deliver me out of this vexing situation. Plead with the Lord. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. And I wonder... Wasn't he praying about it all the time? I mean, were these three seasons of fasting that he set apart? Well, it was so remarkable that he was able to say, three times I did this. But he was able to say it. Plead. That's the first thing. You're perfectly within your rights to plead with God to take it away from you. But if God says, I will not, then in verse 9 he gives us a second reaction Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Now, I've just warned you against being conceited, warned, just warned you against bragging about how tough you are. So I think that this, this requires some contemplation. What does he mean, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses? And I think it's just a hyperbolic way of saying, I am going to see how God is going to use me in this weakened condition, and I'm going to stop whining about it. I'm going to stop whining about it. Instead, I'm going to do my best to uh, praise God for this weakness. So, first of all, plead. Secondly, boast. And then thirdly, strive to be content. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I don't think that the Lord has sent us these vexing situations so that we would be in a perpetual state of anxiety. That we eventually say, I ask God to take this away. I ask God to heal my loved one. I ask God to heal me. He didn't do that. Lord, help me to be content. It's difficult for us to tell whether or not we are truly submissive to any authority until that authority asks us to do something that we would rather not do. That's when it really becomes obvious. And so when the Lord, the Lord sends sickness or sorrow, and you say, God, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can heal my brother. You can save my wife. You can rescue my husband from death. And the Lord says by His providence... I will not. Then we just have been handed an opportunity for us to show, then Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Jim Bob, come lead us in a 
hymn of conclusion.